HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Garden Cult, garden design and coaching. For a 15% discount on virtual garden consultations and coaching sessions, use code HRN15. Learn more at gardencult.com. Hey there, and welcome to the Feed Feed podcast. I'm Julie Resnick, co-founder of The Actual Feed Feed, the world's largest social native food publication and community, serving as your daily source for what to cook, bake, eat, and drink. Throughout season four of the Feed Feed podcast, I will be trying to help you solve the question that we are all faced with on a daily basis, what's for dinner? Each week, I will be speaking with a hashtag Feed Feed community member, whose recipes are a constant source of ideas and inspiration that help me get dinner on my table nearly 365 days a year. Today, I'm joined by Joanne Molinaro from The Korean Vegan, a lawyer by day and a food blogger, author, and well-known social media personality by night. Joanne started her food blog, The Korean Vegan, back in 2016 after adopting a plant-based diet. Over the years, Joanne has amassed nearly half a million followers on on her Instagram page, and more recently, she has risen to TikTok stardom with over 2.3 million followers. Joanne is a Korean-American woman who lives in Chicago, the city of her birth, with her husband. Welcome to the Feed Feed podcast, Joanne. It's so great to hear your voice and chat with you again. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Julie. It's a, it's a real honor and a thrill to be here. Awesome. So I usually start this podcast by talking about food and family, and I couldn't think of a better, better person to have on to talk about that than you. Obviously, um, I've been a fan of yours for, since 2016 when you started The Korean Vegan, <laughs> and um, what a journey it's been for you. Um, I know. It's, uh, it's just amazing. And this, the last few years, what you're doing on TikTok is really just, it's phenomenal. Um, I've, I've had my kids sit around and watch some of your videos to 
help to explain, you know, some of what is going on in, in this world that we're living in. And, and they've gotten to know you. And actually, my oldest daughter has been vegan now since March. And oh, wow. so she is spending a lot of time on your blog. And um, I actually just purchased a copy of your cookbook. So um, oh, I'm giving you. that to her as a gift. So, you know, I wanted to start out by you know, obviously I love to hear about people's family and food and, you know, how food was, you know, and is a central role in your life. Um, you know, obviously following your TikTok account, I've, I've watched the video where you talk about your mom escaping from North Korea. So instead of starting with your childhood, I thought maybe we could start there if you're okay sharing that story with our audience. Absolutely. That is one of, you know, I wouldn't say one of my favorite stories, but it's such an important story in my family's history. And it's one that I didn't learn until much later in my life. And I think I was probably all the way in college when my mom shared with me the fact that a, she was born in North Korea, which was news to me. <laughs> um, her birth certificate still says South Korea, oh but my she's gosh. actually, yeah, she was actually born in what is now known as North Korea. And around about a year and a half into her life, um, you know, there was a big battle in her village, the village of Ongjin, and everyone was instructed to escape to leave, to flee their homes. And so my grandparents, um, you know, it was my mom and her older sister okay. scooped up their kids and whatever food and whatever water they could carry with them and walked to the Yellow Sea. And in my head, when my mom first told me this story, I'm, you know, thinking about like Amy Tan's Joy Luck Club and that mm -hmm. seminal scene, you know, where everyone's walking. And uh, and in fact, my mom told me it took about two weeks for oh them my gosh. to, yeah, I know. I, everybody thinks it's like, you know, 24 hours, I think I was days. thinking it was probably a couple of days, you know, yes. when I was, yeah, okay. That's, that's what I thought too, but she told me, no, it would have taken a couple of weeks for them to get there. And by the time they got there, of course, they had no food and they had no water. And my mom, who was an infant, was starving to death. And my grandparents, luckily, they were able to get aboard, uh, I think, a U.S. naval ship that was destined for the southern region. But they didn't know what was going on. Yeah. They had no food. They had two little girls, uh, a baby who was crying and screaming from starvation. And so they felt they had no choice in this, you know, sort of dilemma, which was, what are we going to do? We can't just sit here and watch our baby girl starve to death. I mean, talk about a painful and agonizing way to die. Ugh. And so, you know, my grandfather kind of was begging with my grandmother, you know, we have to do something about the baby. She's dying before our eyes and I can't bear it any longer. Maybe we should drown her in the sea as a mercy yeah. killing, which was, you know, probably something that crossed the minds of many, many, many parents yeah. during that time. So they were walking up to the uppermost deck of the ship and, you know, my mom's screaming and crying and my grandparents are probably crying their eyeballs out as well, thinking that they're, you know, saying their last goodbyes to their daughter when they're seen by a couple of American GIs 
who approach them to see what's going on. Why are they in such distress? And of course, you know, nobody in my family at that time spoke a word of English. Um, But I think that somehow it was communicated to them that my mother was starving and she Mm -hmm. needed food. So the American GI reaches in and pulls out a Hershey bar and gives it to my mom. And to this day, my mom always tells me that Hershey bar saved her life. Oh my gosh. I know, it's a chilling story. And and, and so you said she told you the story when you were college aged. She just decided one day to to tell you and and tell you that she was born in North Korea. How how did you even start talking about this? You know, it, it was um she would often we'd be eating. <laughs> so we were eating um sweet potatoes one day, which is my mom's favorite food. She always has, you know, a sweet potato roasting in her oven or in her microwave. Mm-hmm. And of course she was eating them and she's just like, I love sweet potatoes. And I'm like, that's great. <laughs> I'm like, why do you like sweet potatoes so much? And she's like, because it was in the village that we were refugees in. And she'd start telling me these stories about how she's a refugee in South Korea. And like, I don't even understand what you're talking about. Like, this is literally how conversations start. And it's it's really my fault because I never bothered to ask her about her history or where she came from or what, it, you know, her youth was like. Mm-hmm. And so she was telling me why she loved these sweet potatoes and kind of through that telling you know, I then discovered she was from North Korea, which is why she was a refugee in South Korea. And that, of course, led to the story of how she escaped. Wow. And so when did she leave South Korea for the U.S.? So that would have been probably in the 70s because she was in her early 20s. She had just finished up nursing school in South Korea and was given an opportunity to come here on a nursing visa um, and stay here if she managed to pass the nursing boards. And I guess she did. She did, but that's another like crazy story. She almost didn't. She almost went back to Korea, but, you know, by some strange miracle. She met this very strange lady on Lakeshore Drive here in Chicago um, that, you know, kind of assured her that she would pass the test if she if she stayed and stuck it out because she didn't pass the first time. She failed the first time. Mm -hmm. Well, good for her. And when did she Mm -hmm. meet your dad? She met my dad before she came to the United States. So they were actually married in Korea. Okay. And my mother was able to bring him over through her status. Great. Okay. And so this is where we usually start. So tell me about your childhood in Chicago, Um, you know, with your parents growing up. I know you said sweet potatoes. You had a lot of sweet potatoes. It's her favorite (laughs) food. What else did you eat? Did she cook a lot? Did your dad cook? How involved were you in the kitchen? Um, I'd love to hear what it was like growing up. So we grew up in a a very, I would say, typical Korean American household in that it was my mom, my dad, me and my brother, and then my grandmother. Mm -hmm. So at any given time, we had either my maternal grandmother or my paternal grandmother uh, living with us between the ages of 
zero <laughs> to, uh, well, I was about 13 when my uh, paternal grandmother finally moved out into her own home. Okay. The per- she was the one who did most of the cooking. So it was, um, you know, by the time I was three, it was my paternal grandmother who kind of took over. And that's very typical because my yeah. father is, is the oldest son. And when I was three was when my brother was born. Yeah. So when the heir to the throne <laughs> was thrown, uh, my, my grandmother came over from Korea and started living with us to take care of him. So he, she did all the cooking and... I would say 98% of the food that I ate growing up was Korean food. And it was cooked by either my grandmother for the most part, or on occasion, my mother. So American food was very, very rare on our dinner table. And, you know, occasionally we would go out to eat at like Ponderosa. And that was like our American restaurant. Um, and that was about it. Otherwise it was, you know, lots of food from our backyard because my maternal grandmother, she was, um, a farmer. And so we had a very, you know, beautiful garden with all sorts of fresh vegetables and produce, um, and, you know, lots of soups and stews, lots of rice and, and things like that. Sounds great. So I guess fast forward to, um, you know, I guess around 2016, you decided to um, change your diet and um, become vegan. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that journey. Yeah. So I went vegan in 2016 for a lot of different reasons. My husband had just picked up a copy of the book called, um, uh, Oh my God, now I can't even remember the name of the book, even though I've read it multiple times. It's by Rich Roll, Finding Ultra. Okay. And that inspired my husband to adopt a plant-based diet for his health and for his fitness. You know, Rich Roll is an avid athlete as my husband is. And at the time we were just dating, mm-hmm. but I could kind of tell that if I didn't get on board (laughs) with him on this, that it probably wasn't going to last. And I figured, well, I'd much rather be with Anthony and live without meat than live with meat and live Mm. without Anthony. So I was like, fine, I'll just do it. I didn't want to do it, Julie. I really didn't want to. And I didn't think that it would be possible for a Korean person to eat a vegan diet because, you know, I'd grown up eating fish and meat my whole life. Right. So, and so did you, I mean, I know that you say that, you know, Korean vegan was kind of born to help to veganize Korean food. Do you feel like that is, you know, what you've been able to accomplish? And I guess, you know, here we are, you know, eight years later and you're, you're still vegan. So, um, (laughs) you've obviously succeeded. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think to a certain point, yes, I have veganized lots of Korean foods, but I actually think it's probably as accurate to say that it has been a journey to discover how plant centric Korean cuisine already is. Yeah. You know, and I think it was sort of revealing to me that maybe even my own stereotypes about this food that I've been eating my whole life um, were, you know, not necessarily legitimate, that it was easy to eat a plant-based diet while eating Korean food because so much of it is already plant-centric. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely true. Um, And so 
tell us about the journey of the Korean vegan. You started it as a blog and um, just a place to share some of your favorite recipes that you were able to veganize and, and, and kind of what, what has been the evolution of the Korean vegan? So you're totally right. I started it as a tool mostly to create veganized versions of Korean food. And it was very selfish, Julie. I just didn't want to eat not Korean food. So I was like, well, I had to do something because there are no (laughs) other blogs out there that do this. So I kind of need to just do it for myself. And, you know, a blog was just a great creative tool to motivate you know, me to explore some of these concepts, right? It wasn't even like, I didn't really have an intention of sharing it so much as like, oh, let's just create a video or create beautiful photos so that you stay motivated in this journey. But, you know, thanks to, you know, people like the feed feed and other folks on social media, a lot of people started seeing some of the recipes that I was posting and sharing on my Instagram or in my Facebook or, you know, in the old days on Snapchat and things like that. (laughs) (laughs) I know it's, that's where, that's where I actually met the feed feed was through Snapchat. And so, um, you know, so that's what it was in the very beginning. In 2017, I started incorporating stories about my family. And at that time, I really wanted to share the immigrant experience in the United States with as many people as would be interested while also, you know, sharing the food that I grew up eating. And again, it was something that a lot of people really enjoyed. So I continued to do that. And, you know, that was probably one of the reasons somebody was interested in working on a book with me because they liked the stories as much as they did the recipes. Well, and you've done such a good job of humanizing the immigrant story. Um, And, you know, when watching your videos and listening to the stories, there's something that's relatable, you know, that I don't have the same background, but there's little snippets of stories that I heard from my great grandfather or grandparents um, or even parents um, and just shared experiences that, no, I am not a Korean woman, you know, uh, but I, I hear what you're saying and I can relate to it. So, um, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, in terms of your followers, would you say that most of them are Korean or, you know, Asian Americans? (laughs) Like who who are your followers? Um, you know, and you know, how have you been able to, do you think it's the stories that have made you so relatable, um, to different types of people. I, I do. And I love hearing your own experience because I think that's really the point of the Korean vegan is, is to try and build connections where people might think connections are not possible. Yeah. And I want to show people that while my experience is unique and beautifully unique Each person's experience is beautifully unique, but within that experience, there are touch points that allow us to connect with one another and empathize with one another because 
obviously, empathy is the, you know, the bedrock of compassion. And everything that I do, whether it's from, you know, trying avoiding animal products to talking about the humanization of the immigrant story to, you know, dismantling, you know, systemic racism is all about compassion and going back to that fundamental principle in my life. It's amazing. And you're doing all of this. We haven't even talked about this. We're doing, you're doing all of this as you are still working full-time as a practicing lawyer. Yes. (laughs) It's it's crazy. (laughs) You have, you know, just exploded on TikTok. I feel like you're everywhere that, you know, every platform that we, um, are on as well. You've, your cookbook actually just came out in October, right? It's going to come out in October. It's going to come out in October. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. October, 2021. Okay. So Mm -hmm. I guess I pre-ordered it. (laughs) Yes. I'll be waiting. I'll be waiting a little while. wonder if my daughter will still be vegan. It's been amazing to watch her actually. Um, she's a competitive swimmer. And so it's, um, I've, I've had to start doing a lot of research. I know that Um, your husband is an athlete and, you know, maybe we should have a side conversation because I feel like it's really important to make sure that she's getting all she needs because she's in the pool for two hours a day. Um, Oh my gosh, totally. Yeah. So um, another thing that I have noticed in the last year, um, you know, that sort of changed through the stories you tell, and I I watched a little um, news clip with you And I I thought it was really interesting how you talked about during the pandemic, we've obviously not been able to gather around the table and the way that your videos have evolved this past year um, are basically virtual dinner table conversations. Can you kind of describe that a little bit for those listening? Yeah. So right before the pandemic, I had just moved into my, you know, apartment, which is huge. And we literally was, we were looking for a place that would accommodate dinner parties because that was what we wanted to do. Prior to this, I lived in a, you know, 1000 square foot, tiny little condo that, you know, barely had a kitchen in it, let alone space for a dining table. And we were so excited to start hosting dinner parties. And we got to about two of them before we had to shut it all down. And it was really depressing because I was just, you know, getting into my groove and really starting to understand what it means to be a good hostess, you know, both as a, you know, provider of food, but also as someone who participates in meaningful conversation that's entertaining and provocative. Yeah. So, you know, when I started creating my TikTok videos, a lot of people were like, thinking, you know, you would think like, why is she talking about random stuff while she's making, you know, braised tofu? Like, doesn't make any sense. She's not even talking about the braised tofu. And I'm like, well, yeah, when you're eating the braised tofu at a dinner party, it's not like that's all you talk about. Sure. There are couple comments like, sure. oh, this food is so good. Mm-hmm. But you could, you could be talking about your most recent trip to Rome or how your kids are doing at school or the fence you installed in your backyard. It could <laughs> right. be anything, anything, you know? Right. 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 And that was sort of the idea. Yeah. I mean, and it's definitely sparked a lot of conversations and, you know, looking at the comments on a lot of your posts, you know, it, it just like at a dinner party, it gets people talking and thinking and questioning. Um, and I think that's really important. 
Um, do you, do you look through all of the comments? Do you reply to everyone who, um, interacts with you? I mean, what, what is your approach to, um, I guess, uh, engaging with your community on social media? Well, I think engaging with your community is important because you get back what you give in, yeah. right? To a yeah. certain point. Is it possible for me to look at all my comments? No. I mean, yeah. I, especially on TikTok, I literally get like sometimes like 10,000 comments on yeah. a post. There's yeah. just no physical way for me to read them all. But I try to spend a good amount of my time getting a sense of the comments, at least, you know, their directional sense, right? Like, where are they headed? What are they talking about? What's important to my community? You know, what are some of the themes that I'm picking up on them? Um, and I do reply as much as I can because I know, again, um, people like it when they hear from me personally and directly. You know, one of the fun features, at least on Instagram, and I'm sure you utilize this as well as the pin feature. Mm-hmm. Um, I love pinning comments yeah. on YouTube or, you know, on Instagram, because then it really, you know, amplifies some of the voices of my community. Totally. Some of them have amazing stories to share. And I love that they're evoked by something that I've posted. And it kind of continues this conversation in the comments, which is really amazing. So this has obviously been a challenging year for everyone. I'm wondering for you, Joanne, through the pandemic and um, everything that is going on um, with the AAPI community, what have you learned in this past year? Oh, that's a good question, Julie. I've learned a lot. I think I learned a lot about what I didn't know. I think that was kind of the biggest takeaway is how much I thought I knew and how little I actually knew. Um, I didn't know so much about sort of the um, real pain and wounds in our country when it comes to race relations. That was kind of revealed through, you know, a lot of what happened last year uh, with George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor, but which continues to happen now, you know, with the hate incidents against the AAPI community. And this was not something that I was as aware of as maybe I could have been. The other thing that I've learned is, you know, how much power there is in solidarity um, and all the good that can be done when people become unified in their struggle and their pain. And that's something that I've been seeing a lot this past year as well, because we're all in pain, whether you're a minority, whether you're a person of color, whether you're related to somebody who has been attacked as a result of their race. um, We're all in pain right now because of a global pandemic. We have been isolated from the people we love. Many of us have had to say goodbye forever to people in our families. So there is an element of loss and immense grief that is really embedded into us by now. And I think that that grief has the ability to bind us in a way that maybe none of us has ever experienced in our lives. Yeah, that's so true. And so I guess kind of on that topic, 
what have you been doing to mobilizing your audience and your community um, during this time? So I think that um, one of the things that I try to do is to personalize the way that I communicate with people about the things that are important to me and about the values that I think should be shared by a broader group. So for example, when it comes to asking my community to mobilize in the face of, you know, hate incidents or hate crimes or violence against, you know, the Asian American Pacific Islander community, I try to personalize it. It's important to provide them, of course, with information. But at the end of the day, a call to action is only effective if it's something that they can actually do, like mm-hmm. realistically in their brains, you yeah. know? And and I want to meet them where they are. A lot of my audience are either very young, you know, they're kids, yeah. they're in high school, right. or they're just starting college, and they don't have a lot of money. They don't have a lot of, you know, um, ability to just kind of do things on their own. Their right. independence is fledgling at best. Yeah. Or I'm talking to mothers who have two or three children yeah. who don't have the mental capacity to be, you know, planning a, a, a or organizing an event or marching out in the streets. So I want to meet people where they are. And so my calls to action have often been start with where you are. Where are Mm -hmm. you located? Are you in your house? Okay, if you're in your house, then maybe you can read an article or maybe you can pick up the phone and call one of your friends, see how they're doing. You know, think about these issues, you know, contemplate them, ask yourself questions. How do you feel? And when you do it that way and you make, you know, little a activism accessible to people, I feel like that's where you start normalizing big A, capital A activism, if you mm-hmm. will. So true. Um, and as I mentioned, I mean, sharing your videos with our kids is a way to start a conversation. And, and I think, you know, you're absolutely right. We've been in our homes for a year, you know, my oldest daughter, you know, started high school and, you know, she's still at home. She's never physically walked into her high school. Um, and you know, she's having these conversations on zoom in her sociology class. I'm hearing them, you know, when she walks upstairs to get a drink and she has her computer, um, and I hear the conversations, but especially my middle schooler and my nine-year-old, I'm not sure these are conversations that are really happening in the classroom the same way they would if we were in person. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I found that it's really important to, um, you know, have these conversations at at the dinner table and, um, you know, explain to them what's going on. And and I think watching your videos with them has has been... a way that, you know, we can start a conversation and, you know, start thinking about something, like you said, where, you know, it's a little spark. um, And then what we can do, you know, as a family from home, you know, because we're not really going anywhere right now. Right, right. Well, I think that's so beautiful. Um, This 
power of social media. I know some people poo-poo social media and don't get me wrong. There's certainly drawbacks to it, but what you just described, which is its ability to spark conversation that may not have ever happened otherwise. Right. I think that's really important. And it's something that we tend to take for granted now. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Garden Cult, garden design and coaching. Carmen DeVito is a professional garden designer, certified New York State landscape professional, and the founder of Garden Cult. You may also know her from HRN's home gardening videos and our series, We Dig Plants. Garden Cult is a culmination of Carmen's more than two decades of experience designing and building gardens in New York City. Carmen believes that gardens and outdoor spaces should be healthy, environmentally sustainable places that enhance the health of people, nature, and the planet. She knows how to help you maximize the space you've got, help you work with and make the most of the materials, plants, and trees that you already have, and create an outdoor place to use and enjoy for you and your family. Get started at GardenCult.com. For a 15% discount on virtual garden consultations and coaching sessions, use code HRN15 through September 30th, 2021. That's code HRN15 at GardenCult.com. So, Joanne, I wanted to um, kind of move away from the conversation that we've been having and pretend that I'm walking into your kitchen. So you've invited me in and I open up your pantry and I open up your fridge. Um, What would I see? What are the ingredients that you always have on hand um, that are sort of the staples in your cooking? That is a fun question. You would immediately see a total mess. (laughs) I do not have an Instagram pantry or refrigerator at all. Um, Okay, good. Like I always feel like so intimidated when I see these photos on Instagram. I'm like, oh my god, is this what other people's fridges look like? Because that's not mine. Um, But yeah, so here are some of the things that I probably would be very unhappy if I didn't have a within arm's reach. Um, certainly gochujang mm-hmm. and gochukaru. I mean, those are like absolute must-haves. I have jugs of them <laughs> everywhere. Um, and so for anyone a- listening who's not familiar um, with those, uh, I guess, condiments, is that how you would describe gochujang? Uh, gochujang is probably a, it's a, it's like a paste. It's like paste. tomato paste. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So can you describe those two? Yeah. So gochukaru, let's start there, is a um, Korean chili powder, uh, and it can be finely ground or it can be coarse, just like you know a salt or some some other kind of you know milled kind of grain, right? But it, in this case, it's a chili powder, um, and then. Kochu chang, you know, kochu means pepper and chang means sauce. So kochu chang is sort of like a pepper sauce, you know, if you directly translate it, but it's 
thickened using wheat or rice flour, and it's sweetened uh, with some type of sweetener, usually just sugar, and it's fermented. So um, the wheat is what, or the rice is what helps it ferment over time. So you get this really delicious, very flavorful and extremely spicy in some cases paste. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love it. Um, Okay, so what else? What else would we see? So in addition to that, I would absolutely have soy sauce. I usually have about five or six different kinds of soy sauce at any given time. But my go-to soy sauces are kind of light soy sauce, which is not light sodium, but light colored soy Mm -hmm. sauce. Uh, And that's what, you know, in Korean kitchens you utilize for adding to soups and stews. So it's kind of like a broth um, enhancer. And then um, just a regular gluten-free soy sauce that I have, because I know a lot of um, my my to-be guests, since I haven't had as many guests as I would like, um, are gluten intolerant. So I try to find a good natural, you know, brewed gluten-free soy sauce. Great. And how about vegetables and fruits and grains? What would we see? Well, we always have bananas in the house. That's probably our favorite fruit. We have you know, at least five or six bananas in the house at any time, because that's one of those like, oh, I'm hungry and I don't have anything to eat. Oh, reach for a banana. Um, So we have a lot of bananas in the house. We often have some kind of berries right now. We're um, eating blackberries. So we'll usually have some kind of berries in the house as well. Um, Depending on the season, um, you know, we'll have apples in the house because I love honey crisp apples or grapes. Um, oranges, whatever is in season. There was a time where I was eating mangoes every day for about (laughs) six weeks. Um, So we love fruit. It's sort of our, like, you know, I think a lot of people, there's a tendency, especially when you're in a global pandemic, to kind of like reach for something salty and reach Mm -hmm. for something, you know, hearty um, as snacks. And and definitely, you know, we've got lots of nuts in hand, like Veruca nuts and almonds and cashews and all of those things for those kind of snacks. But I always like to have sort of a healthier alternative, Um, you know, instead of going for piece of candy or mm-hmm. like, you know, a pastry or a muffin, have a piece of fruit, have yep. a banana, you know, something like that. Um, and then we like to have kale, broccoli. Those are probably my two favorite vegetables of all time. So I like to have kale and broccoli in the house. Always need to have onions, shallots, and garlic in the house as well. Those are absolute staples. Zucchini when it's in season, squash, um, you know, around the other times of the yep. year are also big staples. And right now I'm really into eggplants. So been, you know, experimenting with lots of different eggplant recipes. Great. I love it. So now that you brought up recipes, let's talk about um, some of your favorite recipes that we can find um, on your blog or that are going to be in your cookbook that's coming out in the fall. Yeah. So let me start with my blog so that there's something like handy there. But, you know, my favorite, one of my favorite meals is kimchi fried rice and Tenjang stew, which is a fermented soybean stew. And in Korean cuisine, you know, and I'm I'm sure you've been to a Korean restaurant, when you order your quote entree, then it comes with like 15 other little dishes, like, yeah, Yeah. little side dishes or panchan. Mm -hmm. And so that's very typical. So I grew up not really being able to eat just 
you know, one thing I need to have like multiple flavors sort of yeah. complementing each other, all the textures working together to form a very cohesive, complete meal. So I love kimchi pokumpap, which is kimchi fried rice, because it's, I can't recreate my mother's kitchen. I can't create her dinner table because she always has all these panchans and I don't have time to create all of them. <laughs> but I can do a shortcut a little bit by creating kimchi fried rice and putting, you know, kimchi, vegetables, a little bit of just egg and, you know, mixing it all together with some gochujang and then having the stew, which is also a big staple of a Korean meal, to complement that and really, you know, nicely pair with those flavors and those textures. It sounds delicious. Um, it's really good. It's so, and it's so easy too. And so, you know, a lot of um, our listeners are sort of, you know, excited to experience, uh, experiment with other foods that they haven't really cooked um, in the past. So what would you say to someone who, you know, they've been to Korean restaurants, but they've never cooked Korean food? Would you say that, you know, your kimchi fried rice recipe would be a good one to start with as sort of an entry point into Korean food? Or are there others you'd recommend? I think Korean fried rice, or I should say the kimchi fried rice. Oh, yeah, especially, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, the kimchi fried rice is perfect because it's very easy to make and it's it's very user-friendly. I, I have two versions and I also have a third version in the cookbook, but the, the really easy version is called the no-chop easy kimchi fried rice. And it's for one of those nights when you are frazzled from, you know, your kids running around the house, your husband didn't take out the trash the way he was supposed to, <laughs> there are dishes loaded in the dishwasher, you barely have any space on your stovetop. It utilizes frozen vegetables that you get from, you know, your grocery store. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you don't even need a knife. Just use some kitchen shears to cut up the kimchi. Exactly. That's all you need. A little bit of oil. And you really do have all the flavors because of the kimchi and the gochujang. Mm -hmm. And it's very easy to put together. And so you're tasting very authentic Korean flavors, but there's not a lot of work that goes into it. So it takes all of the intimidation out of it. Sounds great. Um, I just have a couple of questions left. So I'm curious, what is next for the Korean vegan? Oh, wow. I, I, you know, it's so funny. I was just telling someone today, I'm like, I'm a big planner. I like to have my whole road mapped out in front of me. And this is one of those times in my life where I feel like I don't know what the road looks like ahead. Mm -hmm. I sort of know a little bit, like, obviously, like, you know, the book coming out in October, everything is sort of, you know, focused on making that as big a success as possible. But beyond that, I don't know. I feel like so many doors are opening to me every single week. And it's really, really exciting to meet all these new people, um, you know, find different skills in me that I didn't realize I had, mm-hmm. um, you know, pushing my own boundaries. Um, and there's something really quite lovely, Julie, about not having it completely mapped out for the first time in my entire life. It, that is very exhilarating. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what, you know, the pandemic, you know, in a way that, mm. you know, as much as it slowed us down. It forced us 
you know, to stay home, to realize that we were not in control, um, Mm -hmm. you know, that we never had been in control, but we thought we were. And, you know, that's, that, that is something I had always said to our kids because we've been bi-coastal for the last several years. And, you know, it's been a little challenging for them and, you know, they, this isn't normal. And I said, you know, I don't know what normal is, you know, like this is what we're doing, you know, and this is a good experience for you. Um, And they will always ask us questions like, when are we going to do this? And, you know, maybe it's as simple as like, when are we going back to New York? Um, And especially with in in the pandemic, you know, the answer was, we don't know, you know, Mm. we don't know, but we, you know, um, and, and, you know, when am I going back to school? we don't know. Like, you know, and I think, um, I think it's, it's a good life lesson. You know, it's nice to be organized and to have a roadmap, but to realize that we're not in control and, um, you know, life is going to take some turns that were unexpected, but, um, you know, ultimately, you know, it's heading in the direction that it should, you know, for you. So, so yeah. Okay. Well, we'll be, we'll be watching and listening and and seeing where you go next. Um, I guess the last question that I have, maybe you can tell us a few people who have inspired you over the years in food or outside of food. Hmm. That's a really good question. Wow. I think that I, I tend to gravitate towards strong women I mean, those are the people who really challenge me to um, be better and to step outside of my comfort zone. I mean, obviously my mom, you know, and I know Mother's Day is coming up. She's a huge influence in my life and probably one of the strongest women I've ever known in my life. And so I always kind of aspire to be more like my mom. But I think even, you know, within food, you know, you, you know, Terry at No yeah, Crumbs Left, right? Of okay, so, yeah. you know, and I became friends with her because of you. <laughs> so, um, you know, she's been sort of wonderful and, and she's actually a lot like the feed feed. And I say, I said this to, to Dan, I don't know, I, I call him Daniel, but I don't know if he goes by Dan, but, um, you know, I said this to Daniel when we were chatting a while ago, which is one of the things that I love about the feed feed. And one of the things that I absolutely adore about Terry is that she was my friend when I had 4,000 followers, <laughs> right? She right. didn't care. Yeah, you know what right, I mean? It's right. like not about that. No. And she's always been my cheerleader and my fan and my supporter and my friend, no matter what, yeah. like it didn't matter to her. And that really, when you're in the world where that matters to so many people to find somebody to whom that doesn't matter at all. It's really your character that is important. Then there's immediate loyalty that sort of just slides into place. And that's important. And that's the kind of um, outlook that I aspire to have is to always view people for who they are and not the numbers that surround them. And so, and, you know, and as, as I said to Daniel, that's what the feed feed was like. They, they wanted to work with me when I didn't have any followers <laughs> and they just saw somebody who was enthusiastic about yep. food. Yeah. And that is really, really important to me. 
That's great. Well, thank you so much for taking your time to have this conversation with me and come on our podcast, Joanne. It was great catching up with you. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. I had a wonderful time chatting with you and catching up. Yeah. And thank you so much for listening. To learn more about the food and drink discovery platform that is the FeedFeed, head to thefeedfeed.com. Be sure and follow us on Instagram at thefeedfeed. And don't forget to follow the Korean vegan. She's everywhere. TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and even on Clubhouse. If you have a food story to tell or you want us to interview a blogger, cookbook author, chef, or restaurateur who's helped you solve the what's for dinner question, we'd love your suggestion. Just send us a DM on Instagram. See you next time. The Feed Feed is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from our listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Thanks for listening.